Almighty God, we stand here before you on the precipice of the end, looking forward to what is to come. As we look forward to what is to come, we look to your word for guidance, for light, to know the path that you have set for your people. Illumine to us the way that we may follow Christ in all his ways, all the days of our lives, no matter what day, year, or era we walk through. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 43, verse 16 to 21. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 16 to 21. And when you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's holy word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing, and now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I will give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So once again, it's a joy to be here with you, worship the Lord with you, and Merry Christmas, everybody. Um, whenever I would say Merry Christmas, anytime it's outside the 25th, people will correct me. I have even little kids correct me. Last Sunday, I said Merry Christmas, and one young girl said, it's Merry Christmas Eve. And I was thinking, that's not a thing. No one, nah, but I said Merry Christmas Eve back to her. Uh, it's, it's cute. Uh, but Merry Christmas. It is the seventh day of Christmas. That's where seven swans a-swimming happen. And if you don't know already, um, you know, if you know me by now, you might be thinking, oh, there Pastor Eugene, there he goes again with his history, you know, things like that. But um, yeah, Christmas is a season, and there are 12 days of Christmas, you know, since I think it was recorded since uh, the third century. We've had 12 days of Christmas until the day of Epiphany, which is January 6th, right? So the first day of Christmas is on the 25th. And so today would technically be the seventh day of Christmas. And then we even have a song on the seventh day of Christmas. And there's seven swans of swimming. There's all these birds in the song because it points to something to remember. So it was a teaching mechanism for young kids about our faith. So on the seventh day, there's seven something, six days, I mean, six, there's six something, five, five something, four, all the way back down to one, a partridge in a pear tree, which points to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so one is, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then each, each number of the days, they would teach something to a kid about our faith. And so it is the seventh day. Um, just so you know, the Christian calendar has been there. I don't know if you grew up, even if you grew up in church, you might not have celebrated, let's say, everything in the Christian calendar. It's not your fault. It's not your pastor's fault, I don't think, at least. 
But for 2,000 years, people have been celebrating this. And some people think, is it a Roman Catholic thing? Again, it's not even from 300, the year 300 and, or 200 and on, we've had records of people celebrating Christmas and the day of Epiphany and things like that. And so this still is the season of Christmas until we hit January 6th. And on January 6th is the day of Epiphany. It's where we remember, uh, you know, the three kings of Orient or the wise men or the Magi. And it's celebrating the manifestation of Jesus as God. It begins on January 6th, and then that season goes all the way to Lent. And on Lent, that season goes all the way to Good Friday, Easter, and then Easter season goes on all the way to, let's say, um, the Ascension, which is 40 days after Easter, and then 50 days after Easter is Pentecost. After Pentecost, we have the season of the Trinity, so you focus on God, his triune aspect, and that's almost six months until we go back to the season of Advent, and that's Christmas, or the four weeks before Christmas. And so that Christian calendar is something that we've seen churches uh, throughout the millennia celebrate. And so that's why I say Merry Christmas, not to be a big nerd or anything, it's just something that we've done, and it's just so that you don't lose sight of Christmas too quickly. And I think the reason why I bring it up is to point that fact out. Maybe Christmas ends too early for us, and immediately after the 25th, you just want to move on. Isn't that the, kind of the feeling these days? Ah, oh, Christmas is over. Tear down the tree, you know, get it out of here. And time to put up something else. I don't know. Uh, but today is also the last day of 2023. We do have a worship service at 9 o'clock tonight. So we traditionally in our church have a service from 9 p.m. to about 10.30 or 11 uh, p.m. to, you know, have one final service because the 31st is not always on a Sunday. And so we do that and then we ring in the new year by having our first Sunday service on the first, we, uh, first Sunday of 2024. Um, and I was thinking about that too. All these things happen to be changing. I've, I've seen people sort of talk to me, tell me about their thoughts, how they're feeling how their 2023 was. I just wanted to take some time here. I want to address a lot of things, and I realize this will take a while, so I want to address whatever I can't do here tonight at 9. But look back at 2023. When you look back, it might even seem like a blur now. You know, I say look back on 2023. And I don't know if maybe it's my age, or just the vast amount of information we're getting. We're getting so much information about almost everything, and we're supposed to feel something about every single piece of information. If I gave you a news piece, you're supposed to have some sort of feeling, or you have to have this opinion. And that's when you start getting tired, and then everything starts to kind of meld into one thing. And everything might seem like a blur, because I think maybe for me, it's a little bit of both age, and all this information we're having. In the beginning of this past year, if you remember the war in Ukraine intensified. In October, uh, Israel declared war on Hamas. And I don't know what else you remember about 2023, but these are like big world events. But I think another big world event is AI, 
we haven't really talked about that, and I was thinking maybe we could do a podcast episode on it, but AI is almost everywhere now. In like less than a year, AI is everywhere, like from the games that you play to you know, the algorithms that you're seeing or at least experiencing in your social media and all these things. AI is almost everywhere. And that's, uh, that's if you look outside. So, you know, we're here. I think people like this place because one of those reasons is, you know, here it's your home. You feel safe. You hear the word of the Lord. You're encouraged. It feels good. I just want to take a little bit of time to ask you to look out the window figuratively and look back at what's going on outside. Uh, but inside here, you know, we had some really nice things happen. Our construction started this past summer. We had uh, two months of worship at another location. Thankfully, a school opened for us. So by the grace of God, we were able to worship there nearby. We recently, last week, moved back here into the multi-purpose room in time for Christmas, which was great. In a few weeks, our main sanctuary will be ready. We've had a record number of baby baptisms this past week. It was incredible. Um, I do, however, look forward to records being broken. But I suppose in many ways, you know, when you look back at even in the inside, you can't help but to wonder what tomorrow will look like? What will 2024 look like? And you can't help but to wonder what the Lord has in store for us as a people, but also us as a community, as a nation, maybe even the world. And I think that's basically the theme of today's message. It's kind of, you know, I just want to share this with you. I want to look forward and see what the Word of God also says. And um, you might think, looking forward, that's not really how your title sounds, but it is looking forward to something. It means you're going to leave, looking forward to something means you're going to leave something behind. I think that's where we should start this morning. I'll try to cover as much as I can, but I do have tonight that I want to finish off all of this with. But I think we're not just coming to an end of a year, end of a year. I think we are coming to an end of something bigger. And I think a lot of people also feel that. Many people have come to me and, and made comments like, I think, I think there's something big happening. I, don't, I can't really say what it is, but I just feel it. Something is happening. Something feels like it's going to end. And I, I get it. I, I appreciate your comments. I, I like it. All these new beginnings are happening in our church, but when you look out the window again, um, I think people feel something. They just maybe don't know how to articulate it as well. I just want to help you along with that, perhaps. I mentioned this before, but I think this year's Halloween was a little different. And last year's Halloween was a little different too. I'll start with Halloween because I think it's an important part of our culture. This year's Halloween, I remember sharing the story with you, but I took my kid, because it was nice still, uh, in the Halloween season, down to our town square, where our park is, there's little rides, and you have to make your way on a little road, it's a little windy road down a hill, I'm taking my kid, and they had these Halloween decorations up, and that's what the town did. It's a little different from the past years, because 
I feel like as I look at the town's decorations, it is progressing in Halloween. And it's progressing to a point where I'm like, wow, I did not know that kids could be exposed to this and be okay. Because as I was walking down, it wouldn't just be ghosts or demons. It would be people that were hung up on trees, like they were hanged on trees. And then I would go by and there, there's another display of severed heads. I saw this one like um, table saw where someone's arm was cut off. So it was torture. I saw other torture mechanisms that, and these are done by the kids of the town. So the kids of the town would make these things up and they would display that as I was walking to um, the center of the town. And I, it made me think a lot. It made me think a lot. I, I thought about it a lot. And then I saw this Wall Street Journal article, which I really enjoyed. So I put that on my Instagram page or story. And I think it's pointing to something. And uh, it's different. And people have noticed it. I thought Halloween was supposed to be for kids. They could dress up like superheroes. How come it's becoming more and more you know, grotesque? It's becoming more violent, it seems, in certain depictions. Uh, my kid likes watching certain TV shows. She doesn't like watching cartoons too much, but she does watch um, like live action, like kids playing and things like that. And one of the main shows that she does watch, it seems pretty innocent, but they have like Halloween shows. And in these Halloween shows, you know, the mom dresses up and the mom dresses up to kind of scare the kids a little. And then she says, just kidding, it's me. Don't worry, it's okay, it's not really scary. But if you look at the costumes that the mom was wearing, it's, it's pretty elaborate. It's like demons and with fangs and you know these elongated body parts, exaggerated body parts, like the head is like two feet big and like you have like five feet long arms and then she would come in and then there'll be blood dripping down the fangs and things like that. And the kids are only like three or four I was like, just kidding, it's just me, mom, and they're supposed to be okay. And I was thinking like, well, that's very interesting that we want to expose our kids to something like that. And so, you know, now when it comes to that episode or show, I just skip it. Next. But it mesmerized Elizabeth. She was like, whoa, what is this? And it didn't scare her, it just mesmerized her because she has no fear. Or better for worse, I don't know. I think it's worse, but, you know, hopefully she gets some fear soon. But... Um, it, it's even gone to our um, kids' shows, Halloween. It's not just, I'm not just talking about Halloween. So some people would be thinking, listening to this, and be like, there he goes again, reeling about Halloween. Give it up. All we want is candy. It's like, that's fine. I have nothing against, you know, getting candy or anything like that. I'm just saying, if we have, I think a lot of people have been noticing that it is progressing. Um, colleges celebrate Halloween. Young adults celebrate Halloween. It's the third biggest holiday where in the United States, monetarily, fiscally, we spend so much money on Halloween, which is surprising, isn't it? So of the three major holidays, Halloween is number three in our country. And it shows us something about our culture, doesn't it? And Halloween isn't just big here uh, because of, you know, the influence that the United States have. We have other places all around the world celebrate Halloween. The United States is sort of exporting this culture outside. I even saw 
Last year, in 2022, Halloween happened. And, you know, there was a stampede. I don't know if you remember in Korea and people would die uh, because there was a stampede in their Halloween um, march or parade or whatever it was. And so a lot of these things are happening. And, you know, you have to start thinking, and this is what I've been thinking and wondering, what's so special about it? Why is it such a big deal? And if you're a young person, it is a big deal to you, isn't it? It's a big deal to you. Older people are like, what? I don't get it. But yeah, young people, it's a big deal. If you're in college or you're just out of college, you remember the Halloween parties. It's a big deal. It's shocking to people in their 40s and 50s, maybe, or 60s. But it is a big deal. People go to Halloween parties. Even couples and families, they go to Halloween parties. It's really a thing. And I'm telling you because I think maybe half the people here don't know. Couples in their in their maybe 20s and 30s, they go to Halloween parties. It's a thing. And it's a little classier, I think, as the older you get. And so there is, you know, a socioeconomic divide. I don't think, yeah, I don't think poor people go to Halloween parties necessarily. But if you are the middle class or upper middle class, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You go to Halloween parties. It's a thing. It's a, it's a cultural thing is my point. My point isn't to deride anybody that has gone to any or doesn't go to any. That's not my point. My point is, I want to look back. I want to look out the window. And I want to share something about some of the insights that we can get from what's happening in the culture. Uh, 200 years ago, maybe more, there were things in our culture, maybe and up, to, up, up until modern day, that you know, I've come across in some people's talks and, you know, books, some podcasts that I've also heard, but it really did start to make sense. But there's something called the carnival, and I'm sure all of you are familiar with that. There's something called the carnival, and in the carnival, in many societies, it comes around once a year. Oh, the carnival is here. And if you watch, like, TV shows that depict old times, they have carnivals, and it has this, this music, you know, this very typical carnival music. That's where you have clowns. That's where you have exhibitions, okay? You have exhibitions in the carnivals. It, you have rides for excitement. So a lot of people are like, I want to go to rides. They're so fun. It gets your, you know, it gets your blood pressure up, that kind of thing. You get excited, your adrenaline's pumping and things like that. You go on the rides. But not only that, you get to see the exotic in these carnivals. You don't see them every day, meaning if you go outside your door, you wouldn't see them, except on Halloween now. So that's, a, that's another point. But you wouldn't see the exotic necessarily until you would go to the end of the year where a carnival would come. And that's where you would go and see the bearded woman. There's a woman that has a beard. That's crazy. Let's go see her. And then you would pay, you know, five cents, whatever it was, and then you get to see the bearded lady and things like that. You would see a man with like six fingers, you know, things like that. You would see these things that you wouldn't normally see, and then people would love it because this is not something that you would see because it's at the end. It's at the end of the year. It's at the edge of town. The carnival doesn't come into the center. It's at the edge of town where it comes. And you get to see these exotic things, meaning you get to see things that you would not see before that you're not used to. And then people, I'm not sure if people really thought about it, but I want you to think about it. Uh, 
no one really looks forward to carnivals. Now, I don't know how many of us here are like, I can't wait till the carnival comes to Bergen County. I don't think people really think like that. I think carnivals do come by, but it's just like a few rides for like three-year-olds or something like that. But it was different back then. And the reason why it was so, you know, people loved it is because people would bring in these exotic things that you could not do on a regular day. On the regular part of the year, that would just be freakish. You would not have it. But in the carnival, those are things that you could look forward to. I want to start tying certain things together. I just wanted to throw out some things to you so that you can kind of think about it. I think you're all intelligent here. There is something that I wanted to develop, but not here, but more historically, how the Roman Empire ended. Uh, there's a saying, you know, the barbarians are at the gates. The barbarians really did come, you know, the Goth did come. They took over and they sacked Rome, which, which was unheard of. How can anybody, for 800 years, the Roman Empire ruled the Western world, basically the world. How can anybody take down the Roman Empire? Impossible. Who has more money than the Roman Empire? Who has more military power than the Roman Empire? Who has more intelligence, cultural affluence? Who has the most like ideas, thoughts than the Roman Empire? Nobody. Who can take over the Roman Empire? Nobody, so they thought. And what started to happen was at the edges of the Roman Empire, um, they are called barbarians. And this is in the Greek. They're called barbarians because uh, the actual word is barbar. Because you couldn't understand them. You couldn't understand them. So when you listened to them, it wasn't a, a comprehensible language. So it just sounded like they were going bar, 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 bar. So that's why they would call them barbars. And that's where we get the word barbarian. But after a while, we had, you know, the emperor of Rome really like trying to make peace toward the outer edges. And then when he died, his son actually, the last emperor, uh, when he died, his sons took over the east and west. I won't get too much into that, but, and then the barbarians really didn't trust him anymore. But you saw the barbarian culture kind of start to come in a little. And the barbarian culture is very different from the Roman Empire or the Western culture that they had. You know, if you look at Roman sculptures, if you go back to museums, what did they look like? They were very clean cut. They had short hair. They were clean shaven and things like that. Back, that was the culture. I'm not saying if you have a beard, you're a barbarian. So please, that's not what I'm insinuating. And if you're clean, if you don't have any, you know, facial hair, you're, you're good or anything like that. That's not what I'm talking about. That was the culture is what I'm trying to say. The barbarians were a little different. They had these beards that was, that was unkempt. It was all over the place. And, you know, that's why they had jokes like you could go inside your beard and find a chicken wing and eat that from last night's dinner or something like that because, because they were unkempt. Um, and so there was a thing, there was a saying that people have picked up on. And the saying was the barbarians are at the gates. The barbarians are at the gates. And... At the gates is where you're supposed to have the most security because that's where you have the enemies try to come into your home. They're trying to come into the center, uh, but they're outside, what, they're outside in the window or they're trying to come here into the center of everything. And then you had people inside the empire start celebrating like the barbarians. They would wear like little helmets. They would put on fake beards and 
they would celebrate that culture. They were like, oh, look at me, I'm, bar- I'm a barbarian, I'm so cool. And you think about that. And that's when, in 400 AD, the, uh, that's when Rome was sacked. It was unthinkable. Who could sack Rome? And yet Rome was sacked twice in, um, in the fifth century. But you start thinking about like what we're really inviting here into the center of our churches and our homes, what we're supposed to say, this is okay. But back then it was like, no, actually those are barbarians, meaning they're not comprehensible to our culture. It doesn't make sense to us, meaning we have a language, we have a moral code, we have a culture, and that is actually antithetical to who we are. But we stop saying things like that. We're saying we should accept everybody, the barbarians are our friends, you know, things like that. Maybe you also remember some messages that I've done this past year reminding us about the sanctity of marriage. The assault that we have on the biblical view of marriage, the soft peddling of the graveness of when you take down such a traditional institution and start to put in new values, saying, this is marriage, this is what we have, it's been given to us, and then you start putting other things into marriage. And then people are like, what's going on? But there is a messaging that is antithetical to our historical understanding that the people of God have held for thousands of years, thousands of years. And if you remember how I started this past year, my prayer was that our church, we don't get bamboozled. We won't be deceived by the wiles of this current ideology that is invading The current ideology makes you hate the Christian brother or sister for talking about godly values. When we talk about godly values, it's like, I hate that. I hate you for saying that. You're so hateful, so I hate you. You're a bigot, you're racist, things like that. But ultimately, it doesn't make you just hate your sister or brother in Christ. It makes you hate God, whether you think you do or not. And the question that has been posed to me by critics are questions like, why can't we just let people live the way they want? You know, they want to marry whomever or whatever, let them. You know, what's, why is it our business to say anything? And people started to get swayed, you know, even inside, even inside. And what started with, let's just have people love who or what they want to well, let's let them celebrate it to, well, let's help help support it. Let's pay for it. And it has gone to, we must celebrate it. To, if you don't celebrate it, you will be at a disadvantage. To, you have to hold these things dear now. What was outside, you need to hold dear in the center. It must replace your center and it must be the center. In a sense, the worship of God on obedience to what he decreed had slowly shifted because of faulty theology, perhaps. We've said things in the church like, my only theology is that I love Jesus, whatever that means, to now there's almost no recognizable Christian trait in some of these places, from churches to the town square. Uh, Many of you actually tuned into our podcast Surprisingly, we looked at, Sam and I looked at the numbers, 
And it was, we were shocked at how many people are actually listening. I don't know why, but Sam and I have the pleasure of unpacking some of these things and giving some answers in long form. But I think the question still remains for some. Why is this happening? Because while we know the answer is sin, I think everybody here knows the answer is sin, I think the question that is really being asked is, not only why is this happening, but what is happening? What is happening with the world right now? What is truly the problem? Is it really global warming? Are we destroying our world with man-made causes to the global rise in temperatures? Is, it a, is the answer as simple as every family just eating one less steak a week? And then why can't people just do that? The answer is just stop eating a steak once a week why can't you just do that? Why are we so selfish when the world will perish at this rate? This is what some people say. That's this year. I, a few years ago, it was about plastic straws. Remember that plastic straws thing? And then we couldn't have plastic straws, so now we have to uh, eat from bleached paper. Anyway, and then some people are like, uh, is it a hoax though? Is it all a hoax? And if you think it's a hoax, then your problem is still technically with global warming, but not in the warming, but more in the people that's pushing the agenda. It's a conspiracy to gain power. Is it a mix of both, you know? Also, why is everyone racist now? Didn't we find the solution already? Why won't people just adopt this easy solution? On another side note, remember the word microaggression? Now people take these microaggressions as straight up aggressions. They're violations of someone's personhood if you commit one. Anyway, but perhaps inside these walls right now, it's nice, cushy, warm, stable. Why is it when I look out the window, meaning why is it when I look out on some major news outlets or when I look on my TikTok, it looks like everything is burning down? And I think this is a good segue to let you know that this is my beginning to the Genesis series. This is my Genesis sermon series beginning. I'm titling the sermon series, Genesis, Heaven and Hell, The Beginning and the End. I'm only gonna go through the first 11 chapters, but I'm gonna go through each verse, each word in long form this time. So it's gonna be just as long as every other sermon series, but it's just the 11 chapters. I wanna take it a little slower than the other sermon series speeds that I've done in the past. And I wanted to give this message as a precursor to the sermon series. So why do I think all these things are happening? Why is there so much confusion in the world? I think the simple answer is that what happens, this is what happens when a society rejects God. Of course, that's the answer. Because of all the religious options, atheism is probably the worst. Psalm 14, 1, Psalm 53, 1 says the same thing. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. The Bible shows us that. When you continue to say there is no God, you do bad things because of it. Psalm 10, 4 says, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. And if you pick the worst of the options, you descend the fastest, right? I've mentioned Nietzsche's madman once before, but whether you like him or not, whether you like Nietzsche or not, he had a point, didn't he? Because once you get rid of God, once you get rid of God, and that's what we want to do in our society, can you bring up God in your workplace? 
Can you bring up God in the town square? Can you bring up God in the political conversations we have? In fact, we had a presidential candidate, Bernie Sanders, who said, you're a Christian in one of the hearings. You're a Christian, then you shouldn't serve in the government at all because don't you think Jesus is the only way? We can't have you serving in government. And all these people loved him. They loved him. They were like, well, what about for Bernie Sanders and things like that. But he was the guy who didn't like Christians. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because we think that's normal. It's normal to get rid of God. We've come to a place where we think, get rid of God in our workplace? Of course. Why would I mention God and potentially offend people? Things like that. So he did have a point. Because once you get rid of God, you get rid of thousands and thousands of years of morality. And then that's thousands of years of moral sustenance, meaning morals sustaining and building and growing and evolving. That all happened because of God. We're sitting here because of what happened 2,000 years ago, are we not? But once you, quote-unquote, kill God, Nietzsche realized this. Once you kill God, it's no longer a walk in the park. Don't you realize it? It's not just something that you celebrate and move on. You have to do everything over. And by everything, he meant everything. Everything is up for grabs once you kill God. Everything that we took for granted in the moral code, the things that we were given, things like Murder, stealing, adultery, they're all up for redefinition. That's what we're seeing in the world today. The barbarians are at the gates because they're the ones that were eating their kids. They were literally living lives of cannibalism. And that's why we see things like, why is all of a sudden cannibalism in the news now? Why are all these Hollywood stars talking about cannibalism? It's weird. It's weird. Why are they joking about it? It's just weird, and yet this is what we are being exposed to because everything is up for grabs. They're all up for redefinition because there has to be a new moral code. And the new moral code is established through power, coercion, manipulation. This new societal order believes that we must even teach our young kids about the new sexual mores. I say LGBTQ, but it's more than that. It's more than that. Because what comes naturally to when we look at displays like that is you are naturally disgusted by it. There is a visceral reaction in most people when we see things like drag queens. But now we have to change that. If you say that you have a visceral reaction, oh boy, you're in trouble, aren't you? Even things like drag queens, which it was meant to do. They would dress themselves like that to elicit a visceral reaction. But now we're supposed to think that when we see something, a display like that, oh, that's just normal. And not only that, we have to educate our kids to, to say that's normal too when you see something like that. Because we can't have our kids being bigots or racist, can we? Now here at the end of 2023, people may have started, okay, maybe let's give a little to now, like, how far is this thing going to go? Can we, can we pause here? Can I give a little bit of pushback? But that's what people are telling me now. The feeling is, the overwhelming feeling is, I think it's a little late. It's a little too late. You don't want to say it, but I think you think it. It's a little too late, isn't it? Because we've let the monster into the house and the door is shut. Again, it starts, it's, it starts out small, seemingly innocuous. 
don't be racist turns to you must be anti-racist. Or I've been hearing this a lot lately. It's in that phrase, um, diversity is our strength. Diversity is our strength. I've been hearing it so many, so many times from our leaders. And every time I hear it, I just want to say, no, it's not. No, it's not. Our strength was never in our diversity. Our strength was in our unity. We had two models in this nation. In its history, we had two models. One is in God we trust, and the other one was e pluribus unum. That's a Latin phrase that we have in our currency, but it's in the great seal of the United States. And e pluribus unum, as you all know, means out of many, one. The, the saying isn't out of many. That's, that's not what it is. It's out of many, one. Diversity isn't what makes us, or for anyone for that matter, diversity isn't what makes us great. It's the fact that in this great diversity, we can be one. And there's a question that naturally follows there as well, isn't there? One in what? What are you one in? We've gone so far that we can't even ask. That, that question isn't even being asked. We just say diversity is our strength. But I'm saying diversity is our strength isn't the thing. It's e pluribus unum. It's out of many one. The question that needed to be asked isn't even being tackled with because we're still focused on diversity is our strength. That mantra, that nonsensical thing that we, we're saying over and over and over again, you just say it over and over and over again, people just say, oh, okay, 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 I guess, I guess it's true. But that's the question that we needed to ask. One in what? What are we one in? But this philosophy and ideology has penetrated our higher institutions to our major corporations. And now almost every institution, maybe even have a small business, that philosophy and ideology has penetrated into your business. Has it not? Because it has to. We need to make an all truth. If we take out God, we need to put something else in the center that is an all truth. And if that doesn't work, we'll try the next thing, as long as it's not God, right? Uh, we have something called diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you think about that. What is the goal of a company? If you have a company, and some of you here are leaders in your businesses, you own companies, you are part of the elite, meaning you are, you know, you have something higher than undergraduate degree or bachelor's. So you could be in the medical field or, you know, something else, a PhD in some other science. What is the goal of a company? The goal of a company, is it DEI? Is it something, is DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, something that ought to be prized? But you take this philosophy to the very end, what will you have? What will you have if you take, for instance, our current all truth, which is DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion? What will you have if you take it to its very end? You will have disintegration. You will not have a society anymore. because it's going to every single thing. Let's take baseball, for example. Well, we, have a, we have very, very uh, competent athletes here. We even have a baseball coach and part of our membership. I always wanna ask him questions about baseball, but we never get to it because I first ask him about golf, but that's a different thing. Baseball has a diversity of assignments. Even if you don't know baseball, that's, that's something that you can agree on, I, I hope. But you have a diversity of assignments to achieve a singular purpose. The purpose is there. See, in baseball, diversity is not the goal. 
You can't think that if you have a small non-white girl, let's say a, a 10-year-old you know, Korean girl on the field in the MLB, that you've achieved something. That's not the goal. You have positions that you play. There's a shortstop, you know, first, there's all these basemen, there's catcher, pitcher, you have fielders, you have people that are on bat. They have a purpose, they have a goal, they have a role to play. And to get that role played right, they need to have certain capabilities, abilities. And then the game is comprehensible. It makes sense. It's entertaining to watch, but you can also side with teams. You could be like, this is what it's about, and I could get elated for that. But if you make diversity its goal, and say, all, all, all we need here is diversity, because diversity is our, is our strength. Uh, baseball dies. It's not baseball anymore. I, I take this really simple example because I'm telling you, it has pervaded every single institution and people don't know what's going on. You're like, what's wrong with diversity? I'm telling you what's wrong. It can't be the goal. Because the goal is what we have been given as the center. In this house, there's a center. We can't let go of the center. The goal in the center is God. And God has his word that he gives us. And he gives us purposes. He says, here's the shortstop. That's your goal. That's your purpose. You're going to play first base. And I want you to do this. And it's great. It's wonderful when it actually comes into fruition. But you have the first baseman just running into the dugout or running into the crowds. It's like, what are you doing? It's like, I can do whatever I want. There is no purpose, is there? As a first baseman, it makes me happy that I run into the stands. It's like, no, 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 no. That's not the goal of baseball. Well, who told you how to define baseball? Is how our society is basically running. Because maybe we've seen someone else who was a first baseman just, you know, hang out in the dugout. They drink someone else's beer, eat their sandwiches, and just sit there. We see these things, it's like, well, why can't I do that? When your job is to be a first baseman. And that's why the precursor that I'm giving to us is we have to stop watching terrible things. Maybe in 2023, you watched a lot. If you're gonna have a resolution, this should be our resolution. Stop watching terrible things. Stop listening to terrible stories. Stop, stop watching Disney and complaining to me how terrible it is. Just stop watching it. They have terrible stories. We have to be able to tell our children better stories. We have to be able to tell our children better stories because there are better stories for us to listen to and watch I, I do believe so. I firmly believe that. And you're like, there are better stories out there than what's on TikTok and Instagram? I think so, yeah, yeah. And then the question might be, if so, where are they? Where are those better stories and why aren't we listening to them instead then? And to start, I think we need to go back to the old stories. It's in the old stories that have lasted thousands of years 
that give us insight to why we are the way we are and what happens if we stay this way. And this is why I particularly love Genesis. It is my favorite Old Testament book in the Bible, a book that I come back to again and again, not just in the beginning of our yearly Bible readings, you know. Everybody starts off strong in our Bible readings. Genesis 1, yeah, and then by Leviticus it's rough, right? This is my invitation for you to join our one-year Bible readings. I don't know if that was a good segue or not, but we're going to have a one-year Bible reading, and it's going to be on our apps tonight in our service. We're going to give you a bookmark and go through the Bible with us together every Saturday. Uh, Whoever is going to give the sermon on the Saturday, we're going to take from the portion of the week's readings and give a sermon there. So it'll be a lot of fun this year. I think the... Just in these 11 chapters of Genesis, we're going to see a lot of beginnings and ends, from small ones to great ones. We'll go through all of them. But that's that's our life too, isn't it? In our life, we have small beginnings, small ends, to big beginnings, big ends. We have days, which are small beginnings and small ends. Every time you go to bed and close your eyes, that's a small end. And every time you open it, that's a small beginning to bigger ones. We have smaller cycles like this to bigger ones, to years. And this is the end of a year. It's a real thing. Then to eras. And I do believe we are coming to an end of an era. And then we'll also see in the book of Genesis the difference between heaven and hell. It's going to be a wild ride. I would like for us to approach the old familiar stories with a new set of fresh eyes to see how it would have been read at the time. Also see how we can see this in the light and fulfillment of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The messianic prophecy being fulfilled. Christ reigning, Lord is King. And how we can see Genesis in that light as well. That's how Paul, the Apostle Paul, saw it. He always referred back to Genesis too. And just as a primer about Genesis, let me give you this tidbit then. The first word in Genesis is what? In the Hebrew, it's the word bereshith, which means beginning, beginning. So even the first word in the book of Genesis says this is the beginning, beginning. What's the last word in Genesis? Chapter 50, no. Joseph is buried, he has his bones. The last word in Genesis is the word Egypt. But Egypt is a special word in the Hebrew. It's translated Egypt from the Hebrew word Mitzrayim. And Mitzrayim actually means literally to bind with a rope. It means slavery. And in Hebrew, when you heard Mitzrayim, you would hear the word as a physical and spiritual bondage. It's a physical and spiritual slavery. So Genesis starts with the beginning, there's God, and the end, there is Mitzrayim. There is a beginning and an end. There is heaven and then there's hell. So there you have it. Even from the first and last words of the book, you see this theme play out. And I think it's going to be a wonderful thing for us to know. These stories, we need to tell our children. These stories that we need to know ourselves front and back instead of the stories that we hear outside like on TikTok. I think these are important for us to know so that we know why the center is the center, or even what is in the center. 
Now, I read a portion from Isaiah because I wanted to end with that because you might think, well, what's, what's this have to do with anything? Because I want to take it one step further. There is an old familiar story to the Jewish people, and that's the story of Exodus. And especially in this part, it's the parting of the Red Sea. It's showing us what happens when they are at a maybe perhaps similar state that we are in. They were people at their wit's end. There was death all around the people of God. The Israelites had death all around them. In the front, there was a sea. That's death. You can't go there. You're going to die. Behind them, to the sides, you had the Egyptian chariots. The armies coming after you. There's death front, back, left, right. Wherever you looked, there was death all around them. Well, what does God do? God splits the sea. And he makes a path for his people. And that's the key here. He makes a path, and that is salvation for his people. But that same path is the death to his enemies. There is a path that God makes, and that path is salvation to his people, but that same path is death to his enemies. The path is life for God's people, it's death for God's enemies. That's a story to remember. That's a story to tell your children. And that's what the Israelites did from generation to generation. They told the story of how God parted the sea and made a path, a path of salvation for his people, but that same path was death to his enemies. And it's a great story to tell. You should make movies out of it, maybe. Call it the Ten Commandments. Maybe even make an animated movie out of it. I don't know, whatever it is. But there's more to it. In verse 18, God says something quite astounding. He says, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. What do you mean, don't remember? I thought you just said, remember the stories. In fact, everything in the Bible is for us to remember. Even the Passover was given for the people to remember, even before the fact. The Last Supper was given for us to remember. We're going to, we're going to remember Jesus Christ when we take hold of the Last Supper or communion tonight at 9 p.m. The stories are given for us to remember, to remember. God commands us in the Bible to remember all the things written in his word. So what does he mean when he says, don't remember then? And in verse 19, he clarifies, behold, I am doing a new thing. And this is really, really the amazing part to me. In this context, God is saying, don't remember the old things as if I'm going to do the exact thing. He's going to do a new thing. And these new things will be like the old things in the sense that at the time it was mind-blowing. So something that we couldn't have thought up, we couldn't have thought up ourselves. But it will clearly be God. And when that happens, it will garner praise from his people. And I love that. God doesn't do everything with the same cookie cutter thing. And that's why I think some Christians, we're mistaken. We grew up in the church, we think God does the exact same thing, the cookie cutter thing, cut and paste. And that's how we get saved, cut and paste, cut and paste, cut and paste. But if you look at the context, he's telling his people that the splitting of the sea was great. You know why? Because I am great. God is saying, I am great. And as great as the splitting of the sea and the annihilation of his enemies were, God is going to do something new that's also great, but it's going to be even greater because God is God who is greater. 
The lesson is that the past can teach us that's what, we, that's what we have foregone. That's what we need to go back to. The past has to teach us, but the moving forward, the past cannot bind us. It's a mistake to forge the past that we, what is happening in the world is going to exactly happen this way because God is not limited by the past. The Lord always has greater things in store. And that's confusing maybe to some, but let me even tell you what Jesus Christ said on John 14. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. And while some may take these verses to mean that like these people will do miracles, I don't think so. I believe it means more than that. I believe it means more than that. That means the work of God will increase more. That means he will be revealed more. In the next very verse Jesus of this section, verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So it just can't be miracles. That doesn't make any sense in the context. What does it mean that if you love me, you will keep my commandments and then you will do greater works? All these things are showing us that while God has revealed in the past stories, he is always more than what has been revealed in the past. What has God done for you in the past? What has he done for us in 2023? He is showing us that he is more than that and that he's going to reveal himself more to his people because he is that amazing. And we'll see this progression as we go through Genesis as well. We are coming to an end of an era. And I think when I started to share it, it was a little depressing for some, perhaps, perhaps. And anyone that isn't completely disconnected from their senses can tell when it's about to rain. We are coming to an end of an era. But the end is what God has always used to launch his people to a new era. This is something that is consistently shown in his word. So while it can be disappointing, we don't lose heart. It can be demoralizing, but we don't lose our spirits. God has something greater in store for his people because he is the one that garners forth praise from his people. You will look at what God does, and he's always done this. I'm not saying this to set you up for a fail. He has always done this where you will look at what God has done. You're like, I couldn't have thought of that in a million years. God is amazing. And that's what he does for his people because he is the greater thing in store. He is that great. He is infinitely great where he will continually amaze his people because he is that glorious. So as we end, I think the question for us is, which one are you? Are you the people of God or are you the enemies of God? Because one thing that should be clear is that there is a difference between the two. There is a clear understanding of happens of what happens to one or the other. And that's why my encouragement to you is that at the end of 2023, hold fast to the eternal, never-ending light of Jesus Christ. He is, the, he is the one that leads us into a new day. He is the one that leads us into a new year. He is the one that leads us into a new era. He is the one that eternally holds us and holds us fast. And he is truly the glorious one. I'm excited to go into the new year with you. I am thankful that I got to spend this whole year with you all, go through all this. But when we really look back, I think our testimony should be, God is glorious. God is glorious. 
Look at what he's done for us. He truly is a good God, protecting us, giving us wisdom, binding us together in him, unifying us, giving us the opportunity to worship God. What a good God he is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you give us and how you garner forth praise from us with your outstanding works. Even when we look at the past, we see how wondrous you are. But not only do we look at the past, we look at now, present day, and see how glorious you are, even in our very lives, how you are so good, so faithful to us how you have given us good gifts. Now help us now to be obedient to you. Help us to obey your commands. As our Lord and Savior said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this is what we want to do with our very lives. We don't want to be dismayed or lose heart by the things that are going on. But we want to see that these are just groundworks for you to do amazing things, to show who truly is sovereign who is the real ruler of this universe. And help us then to follow you all our days to the very end of every day, to the end of every year, and especially this one. Let's take this time to pray and how the Holy Spirit convicts you in his word. Let's lift up our lives to him. Give up your lives to him. Devote yourselves to him. Obey him. Make sure that you recognize he is the center of your life because he is God. And that brings forth glorious praise. Let's pray.